Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Hi there, Zelda. Hey, Denise. How are you today? Good. And I'd like to welcome everybody to Murderous Roots. So what have you been up to today? Well, Halloween's coming up. So today Mm -hmm. has been an immersion into creepy, scary things, including the person we're talking about today. Ah, well, that is pretty scary. Today, we went trunk or treating. Oh, really? How fun is that? That's so fun. And typically, I mean, our our parish will hold this trunk or tree and everybody walks around. But because of the coronavirus, they did a drive through trunk or tree. Oh, fun. So they we all stayed in the car. We had I, we have our minivan um, and had the door open so the girls could see everybody. And they gave us the candy. And then we saw the priest at the end. And then we went on our merry way home. Oh, how fun. Did they get a bunch of candy? A ton of candy. So, you know, they do the typical Halloween thing where they get home and they separate it all and they're trading candy. Oh, that's fun. And since we've kind of decided, I don't know, we might change our mind that we're not doing trick-or-treating this year because of the virus. Mm-hmm. We're excited that it got that. That's very so. cool. A friend of mine who has small children decided they're going to do like an Easter egg hunt only with Halloween candy. And so they're just like hiding the candy around the house and in the yard. Ooh, and stuff. I might have to steal that idea because I promised the girls that they're going to get candy and I want them to tell me what their favorites are mm-hmm. so I can make sure I get that. But I love that added element. Isn't that um, fun? Yeah. What a cool idea that is. Yeah, definitely. So today... We're discussing another cult and cult leader. Cults are my favorite. They are interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're going to be discussing none other than Charles Manson. Dun, dun, dun. So what do you have for us this week? Well, I have to say, Denise, one of the things that's interesting is sometimes when we look at some of these murderers that we profile, and it's sometimes a little hard to understand, how did this person turn out to be such a psychopath? Manson, however, is not one of them, (laughs) right? I mean, let's say he was raised by an alcoholic mother who was in and out of jail. He was shuffled off to reform school at the age of 12, where he learned to be an even better criminal. And- Honestly, I feel as a native Hoosier that Indiana needs to not only apologize for Mike Pence, but also for Charles Manson, because it was in these reform schools in Indiana that Manson became a hardened criminal at a very young age. Well, maybe, maybe Indiana's the problem. Indiana's the problem. Just, it's a problem (laughs) (laughs) in general. Um, So yeah, yeah, and I'm sure you know this, by the time he was released at the age of 19, he'd been convicted already by the age of 19 of theft, armed robbery, grand theft auto, arson, and rape, mostly during the times he had escaped from the various reform schools. Of course. He also what else are you going to do when you escape? Exactly, right? There was one he escaped from. I think it was the Indiana Boys Home. He escaped from there 18 times. Wow. Yeah. And then every time he was out, he got caught because he would like go commit a crime and get caught 
stealing cars and stuff. So he also spent most of his 20s in and out of prison. So literally, by the time he was 32, he'd spent more than half his life in some sort of institution. Dang. So one thing we have to remember about Manson is that unlike some of the other folks we profiled, he wasn't really particularly smart. His IQ, they say, was around 109, and he was only semi-literate. And this kind of explains why he kept getting caught during all these crimes, because he was really <laughs> bad at it. <laughs> he was not a bright man. Another major aspect to his personality was his blatant racism, white supremacy, and misogyny. So despite his ignorance, he seemed to have some kind of certain compelling charm and had no problem making friends and attracting women. Now, this may be somewhat due to the whole hippie lifestyle of the 60s. He was a drifter who mostly hung out with other drifters, used lots of drugs, and robbed people to have enough money for eating and drugs. By the time he was released from prison in California in March 1967, at the age of 32, for forging a signature on a treasury check, he had added pimping to his list of crimes. And that's where he learned from other pimps who taught him techniques for successfully coercing and breaking down the resistance of women under his control. Manson exploited the drug-happy, freewheeling goodwill of the era by bonding with his would-be followers, then luring them into imbalanced and manipulative relationships. Now, this next section, the summation, is from an article I read in Vox by Aja Romano, who wrote it on August 7th, uh, 2019. Okay. So after this, he was, you know, he's been released from prison, 1967. He started traveling throughout California and approaching young women in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, as well as Los Angeles's Venice Beach, presenting himself as a religious figure and urging them to follow him by surrendering their identities to him completely. Whoa. His follower count grew, and in the fall of 1967, so just a few months after he's been released in March, really, mm -hmm. Manson packed up the family and moved them to Los Angeles toward his dreams of Hollywood stardom. <laughs> At its largest, the Manson family had about 100 members with about 30 core members. So I don't know about you, but until this point, I thought the Manson family was just that little handful of crazies that yeah. you hear about with all the murders. But no, there are actually quite a few people who were following him at this point. Wow. So it's at this point the Manson family starts developing into this doomsday cult because Manson became fixated on the idea of this imminent apocalyptic race war between America's black population and the larger white population. So Manson believed that black people in America would rise up and kill all the whites except for Manson and his family. But <laughs> they weren't smart enough to survive on their own, so they'd need a white man to lead them, and boy, was he ready. Oh, and Yeah, it was just, he's nuts, right? <laughs> so I'm like, if they could figure out how to kill all of us, they're perfectly capable of self-governing, right? Like any right, people of would course. Be. So anyway, late in 1968, Manson adopted the term helter-skelter, taken from a song on the Beatles' recently released White Album, to refer to this upcoming apocalyptic war. Now, the song itself has nothing to do with war. It's about an amusement park, but he liked, <laughs> he liked the way it sounded. So Manson began to work his music industry connections, and he was soon making inroads with music producers and actors. By far, Manson's most valuable connection, however, was the one he made through two of his female cult members while they were hitchhiking, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. So apparently Manson was really successful manipulating Wilson because throughout 1968, Wilson allowed Manson and the family to live in his house on Sunset Boulevard and lent Charles Manson hundreds of thousands of dollars to help him record an album Dang. in exchange for sex from Manson's female followers. Oh, uh, that explains so much. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wilson's manager finally evicted the family in August 1968. That's when they ended up at the Spawn Movie Ranch, which was a popular site for filming westerns, where once again, what did Manson do? Pimped out the chicks to the ranch owner in exchange for free room and board. He loved pimping. He loved it, man. He was very adept at using other people to get what he wanted. Yes. Wilson tried to promote Manson's music and even convinced the Beach Boys to record one of Manson's songs. He also introduced Manson to Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day. Now, yeah, I know, right? Everybody's related in Hollywood. So (laughs) Melcher was a record producer. During this time, Melcher also dated up-and-coming Hollywood star Candace Bergen, who was renting a house at 10050 Silo Drive. Both Wilson and Manson frequently visited Bergen and Melcher at the house. Whoa. Yeah. I so haven't seen then, any interviews with Bergen saying anything about that. So. Isn't this crazy? Yep. So Melcher and Bergen moved out of the house at the urging of his mom, Doris Day, because Manson had been denied a record deal and threatened to kill them. Oh. So Doris was like, get the hell out of that house, move someplace else. So they got out of the house. And the house was then rented to Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate. Doris Day was so smart. Yeah. yeah Unfortunately, she was. Uh, yeah. So, and the weird thing was, though, um, we, we know that Manson knew that Melcher and Bergen didn't live there anymore. But he had fixated this house in his head as this sign of the Hollywood elite that rejected him. Oh. And mm-hmm. that's why he pinpointed that house later. So now, before we leap into the August 1969 house murders... The murder of Mary Hinman was linked to a Manson follower whose name was Bobby Beausoleil, who'd been a child actor and a roommate of Hinman's. Additionally, a drug dealer named Crow had been shot in the chest by Manson. Manson assumed he died, but he'd actually survived and was tracked down to testify at Manson's trial. So at some point in here, sometime before August 8th, 1969, Manson decided to help Skelter along. It's not sure whether he really wanted to promote the apocalypse or was just trying to confuse everybody about what it, the murders that had happened earlier. Mm-hmm. But late at night on August 8th, 1969, he sent four of his family members, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Charles Loft, and Linda Kasabian to the Tate Polanski home where Terry Melcher used to live. They were aware, of course, as we said, that Melcher no longer lived there. Shortly after midnight on August 9th, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Watson entered the house while Kasabian waited outside. Through a frenzied combination of shooting, stabbing, beating, and hanging, they murdered Miss Tate and four others in the house and on the grounds. Miss Kasabian did not participate in the murders, and I'm going to tell you something kind of interesting about her coming up in a little bit, um, but she was sort of the lookout. Uh, what do you call it? The, oh, is that barking? Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> he wants attention, and I am up here not giving it to him. Ah, no worries. So four people were killed that evening besides Ms. Tate. So the folks that were killed that night, Jay Sebring, a Hollywood hairdresser who actually launched the entire um, business model of hairdressing for men and special hair products and all of that special styles. Um, Abigail Folger, who was an heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune. Uh, Wojciech Frakowski, Mrs. Folger's boyfriend. And Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old visitor. Now, Miss Tate's husband, Roman Polanski, was in London at the time. So he wasn't even home when all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, Stephen Parent, he was just there to visit their gardener to see, to see if he could sell him like a clock or something. And he was on his way out when the gates opened and the family came in. So if he had left literally like two minutes earlier, he wouldn't even have seen, he wouldn't even have been there when all that was going down. 
So before leaving, Zach can scrawl the word pig in blood on the front door of the house. And she did this because, according to Manson, the killings are supposed to look like the work of black militants. Because remember, he's trying to start this race war. Right. So the next night, Manson and a half dozen followers drove to a Los Angeles house. And it seems like he actually selected that one at random. The residents were a wealthy grocer named Leno LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. Manson tied them up. After he was gone, the family members that stayed stabbed the couple to death. And the phrase death to pigs and helter skelter, which was misspelled, were scrawled in blood at the scene. So the seven murders went unsolved for months. Then in the autumn of 1969, the police closed in on the Manson family after Atkins, in jail on an unrelated murder charge, bragged to cellmates about the killings. So on June 15, 1970, Manson, Atkins, Cranwinkle, and a fourth family member, Leslie Van Houten, went on trial for murder. Kasabian, who'd been present on both nights but said she'd not participated in the killings, became the prosecution's star witness and was given immunity. Watson, who'd fled to Texas, was tried and convicted separately. Wait, now, Tex Watson? Yeah, fled to Tex Texas? Watson. Uh-huh. Okay. Get it? Tex Watson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, so Kasabian, oddly enough... One of the things that uh, was testified to was that she actually, they were supposed to hit a third house and she was supposed to run up and walk, knock on the door and then they were going to overwhelm it. Well, she knocked on the wrong door, so they canceled it. And it was like, and I guess she was kind of queasy about all of this stuff happening anyway. And she actually lives out east now and is apparently a real estate agent. Interesting. Uh, I know, right? I read an article about where are they now and it, most of them aren't anywhere good. Um, <laughs> So during the trial, um, as they say, the bizarre became routine. On one occasion, Manson lunged at the judge with a pencil. On another, he punched his lawyer in open court. (laughs) At one point, Manson appeared in court with an X carved into his forehead, and then his co-defendants, all women, quickly followed suit. I know, right? And then they also shaved their heads, too. Right. I saw those pictures. I know, right? It's like... You just want to shake people, right? Yes. But I, I have to say, when I was doing jail ministry, almost every mm-hmm. woman I encountered was there because of a man. Mm. And it's like, you just get really sour on the idea of patriarchy, you know, when it's like right. all these women who are in, in jail, it's because some dumb man talked them into doing something illegal. Anyway, Manson later carved the X into a swastika, which you yeah. might recall. And then, of course, that was flagrantly visible all the time after that. So outside the courthouse, a small flock kept vigil and they kept chanting through the whole thing. Uh, one of them, Lynette Frum, squeaky Frum, would make headlines herself in 1975 when she tried to assassinate President Gerald R. Ford. So on January 25th, 1971, after nine days deliberation, the jury found Manson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel guilty of seven counts of murder each. Van Houten, who'd been present only at the LaBianca murders, was found guilty of two counts. All four were also convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. Then, a couple months later, on March 29th, the jury voted to give all four defendants the death penalty. But in 1972, capital punishment was temporarily outlawed in California, so their sentences were reduced to life in prison. That was found um, unconstitutional by SCOTUS, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mr. Manson was convicted separately of two other murders, those of Gary Hinman, a musician killed by Manson family members in late July 1969, if you remember mentioning that a little earlier, and Donald Shea, who was a Barker Ranch stuntman killed late that August. 
there are also several other murders that they feel are linked to the Manson family, but they haven't actually found the evidence to fully connect it and be able to prove mm -hmm. it in court. Altogether, Manson and seven family members were convicted of one to nine murders apiece. Manson himself maintained the public's ongoing interest while he was in prison due to his wild and erratic commentary and behavior behind bars. He joined the white supremacist group, the Aryan Brotherhood, and was a perpetually disruptive prisoner with female officers bearing the brunt of his verbal abuse. As a fringe prophet spouting apocalyptic racism, who was nonetheless still somehow able to exert a fascinating hold over his followers, his old ones and a whole bunch of new ones, he brought cult and their destructive tendencies into modern public consciousness. So the prosecutor in the case spoke of Manson in almost mythic terms in 2014. The name Manson has become a metaphor for evil, and there's a side of human nature that's fascinated by pure, unalloyed evil. But this narrative of Manson has thankfully diminished over time and given away to the truth that beneath all his theatrics, his bizarre ramblings, his googly-eyed camera hogging, and his violent outbursts, Manson's evil wasn't outsized occult or supernatural. He was an average everyday narcissist who practiced social engineering and learned to use the bodies of willing women around him as a bargaining tool. That's from the Vox article, and I quoted it directly because brilliant, right? Is yeah, that brilliant that, that's wonderful. And she further wrote, Manson's power was built not on his own abilities, but on the bodies, sacrifices, and ravaged souls of the people he took into the family long before they began to kill for his sake. What a great writer. Isn't she great? Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I want to write like her. Um, until his death on November 19th, 2017, he remained unremorseful about the murders. Mm -hmm. And that is the summation of the crazy world of the Manson family. And there's so much. There's so oh, much. Yeah. And so much. one day we might do the trees of some of the other family members. Mm -hmm. That but... would be so much fun and crazy because most of the people who were his followers came from normal families yeah you know and they were kind of buying into this free love movie movement and they just happened to meet him you know right. kind of like the followers of jim jones you know and this was all happening kind of around the same time it's just crazy and you know some of the you know these were just for the most part women vulnerable women who met a terrible person oh and yeah and then you know once you're in a cult it's really hard to get back out yeah it is and to this day, I think some of them are still enthralled by him, even though he's dead. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was a serious hold. It's... Not any, not one single person in the Manson family ever got paroled because right. they refused to express remorse. Yeah. And I, I think Susan Atkins went up recently and was denied. They periodically come up for parole, but they're never given parole. Right. Because Manson periodically came up for parole mm -hmm. as well. Well, you thought his crimes were interesting and his cult. His tree is insane. And Do tell. It's not like uh, Herman Mudgett, H.H. H. Holmes tree, where you find another murder, that type of thing. Before I start, I found some key takeaways that, and commonalities I found in his tree. There is a tendency for the men to take very young brides. Hmm. Tells me a little bit about, I think, what they think of women. Mm -hmm. to that degree they have large no huge families in this tree wow yes they were they participated in the civil war like most people who lived in that area that he did which we'll get to in a moment but they most of his family i think all that i found and now i didn't 
because the tree was so huge, I wasn't able to go down all the lines. They were all on the Union side of the Civil War. Hmm. And he has very deep, deep Kentucky roots. And that's where his family was primarily from. So Charles Manson was not born as Charles Manson. Oh, no. When he was born, his birth certificate was listed as no-name Maddox. And we'll get to the reasons for that later. But he was, a few days later, he was named Charles Millis Maddox. And he was born in November 1934. Now, before we get into his family, I want to talk about his wives and his children really cool. quick. He first got married, probably after a stint in jail. And people have theorized that it was a chance for him to have a normal life, that he was trying. Mm-hmm. And he married Rosalie Jean Wilson. She was born in 1939. They're only five years apart. But when he married her, it was 11 days before she turned 16. Oh. And they married on January 17, 1915 at a Nazarene church in West Virginia. They had one son soon after they were married in April 1956 in Los Angeles. They moved to Los Angeles while Rosalie was pregnant. I've seen it stated where he wanted to move them to Los Angeles, so that's where they went. I've seen it also stated that he went there ahead of her and got arrested, and she moved to be closer to him. Not sure what the scenario is. The son, Charles Jr., changed his name later to Charles J. White, but unfortunately he was unable to legally have it changed. I found that in an article by Carmen Macbeth in Film Daily. So when he would apply for a job, it still said Charles Manson Jr. Mm. Only imagine the trouble that would come with that. And the pressure must have gotten to him because he committed suicide in 1993. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Now, I was going to wait to the end of this, but I decided to bring it up anyway. And there is a man out there who claims to be Junior's son. His name is Jason Freeman. Now I say claim. Let me explain what happened. In 1986, his mother brought a paternity suit up against Charles J. White, or Jr., claiming that he was her son's father. And Jason at the time was around 11. Now the judge found on the paternity suit by default, though. It was a default judgment because it was uncontested. There is no evidence that Charles J. White ever received notification of the paternity suit in the first place. Interesting. He was living in Texas at the time. The paternity suit was filed in Ohio. Now, this came up because Jason Freeman wants to have the estate of Charles Manson after his death. Oh, my gosh. So he went to a judge. Around, I think it was around the time that Manson died, claiming that he's his grandson. See, I have this showing I am the son of, Ju- of Charles Manson Jr. Therefore, I should have the rights to his body and burial. And the judge there gave him that ability to bury the body. Personally, I don't believe the claim. It could be it's true, but I have some problems with it. Because then he wanted to claim the estate. Mm-hmm. He wanted all that came with it. And including the rights to sell stories on Charles Manson and to profit from it. Uh-huh. It's a contested will. It's a contested estate because there's a man by the name of Michael Channels. He was a longtime pen pal of Charles Manson who met with him regularly at prison. And he said that Manson wrote a will and he filed it for him in 2017 before Manson died 
with Michael being named as the executor. Mm -hmm. Freeman's camp is claiming that it's fraud, that it's not a legit will. So they're going back and forth on this. So in 2018, Jason Freeman said he would not voluntarily give a DNA test, get a DNA test to prove his claim, but would do so if he was ordered by a judge. Interestingly enough, now he's been fighting an order by a judge who pointed out that it was a default judgment on the paternity suit. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to, and he's willing to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. That's yeah. weird. Yeah, I found that strange because you would think mm -hmm. he would, if he wanted to do that, he would. And this is a quote from Jason Freeman. If the DNA test was a match, nothing changes. If it's not a match, it does not take away the fact that this man I knew all my life was my grandfather. Wow. Now, he might have known of him as his grandfather. I don't know those details. But he's appealed the so, order several times. And the last order came down in September 24th. And Freeman's attorney has asked, asked for a nine-month delay on the trial, disputing the estate. So I guess my, my big question would be, did he spend time with his father before his father committed suicide? No, he never so, met his father. Yeah, see, that's really strange because I could understand it if it were, well, everybody told me he was, you know, this was my dad, but it turns out it really wasn't. But I feel like he was my dad because he raised me kind of a thing. But if he'd never actually met him. But you mean the grandfather. Well, no, but that's what I'm saying is that yeah. he never, the only thing he knew was what people told him. He doesn't actually have any personal experience with either of those men. Unless, I mean, I, I get the impression he has said that he has talked to Charles, had talked to, I should say, because Charles is dead, mm -hmm. talked to him on the phone and had communicated with him. And he hmm. has even claimed that Charles Manson told him, I love you to him on the phone. Wow. Now, if Charles said that, I'm sure it was a manipulation, but that's just my belief. Wow, that's now, crazy. Now, it gets a little bit more interesting, and this is another reason I doubt that it's true, is and I, I believe it's all about profiting, is in October 2018, it was reported that he gave the remains, and by the remains, I mean Charles Manson's remains, his ashes, because Charles was cremated, to Zach Baggins, the host of Ghost Adventures. And it also was reported he gave him Manson's hospital gown that he was wearing at the time of his death. That seems weird. Zach Baggins is creating um, kind of like a museum a Manson museum of sorts. Oh, that's just gross. Right. It's very macabre and gross. But it's not only just reported that he gave it to him, it's also been reported that he sold it to him for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ah. Mm. Now, I did find one funny thing about Jason Freeman. It's not active right now, but on Facebook, you can find, just do a search, Jason Freeman Family Ministries. Oh, no. And it hasn't been updated for over a year, but it has the following statement, one of his posts. It says, asking Messiah Freeman to provide DNA is the blasphemous equivalent of asking the Vatican to subject a piece of the true cross or the holy shroud to such crude experimentation to prove that Jesus Christ existed. Oh, my gosh. It's concerning. He sees himself as a Messiah already. There's a lot of things. Well, and just that he's following in this path of being a, a preacher. Right. I mean, that's just kind of creepy, you yeah. know? Ew. Well, I, I'm curious to see what happens in the court case at some point. Okay. So let's go back to Rosalie Jean Wilson. After her marriage ended to Manson, um, because they divorced 
around, I want to say 1957. So they weren't married for very long. She married a man by the name of Jack B. White in November 1958 in Imperial, California. She was 19. He was 29. Ew. And they divorced before 1971. Then she married somebody by the last name of Bartellus. I couldn't find any more information, but I saw that as her um, name when she married her last husband, Warren Howard Hanley, or Jack, in December 1984 in Clark County, Nevada. So probably in Las Vegas. Wow. And he died in 1998. She died in August 2009 in Tucson, Arizona. We're going to go. So, so his first wife was married four times. Yes. Okay. At least confirmed three. I couldn't find the marriage record for Bartellus, but her name was listed as Bartellus on the marriage record to Hanley. Okay. His second wife was Candy Stevens. Her real name was Leona Ray Musser and was born in October 1939. So she's the same age as Rosalie. Somehow she met Charles, and being who he was, he prostituted his girlfriend, Candy. Oh, my God. Yet, they married. He used her to try to get out of stuff with the judges when he would go up to trial, and she would sit there and testify on his behalf and maybe cry a few tears to try to get him to go on probation instead of being oh my back God. in prison and all that. But they married in 1959, and he still prostituted her out. Wow. Mm -hmm. Then when he was arrested again in April 1960, she was a material witness in the case. Wow. I think she was done with him. She visited him once in prison before their child was born. Yes, she was pregnant. And I found that a lot of this information about how that went with the trial case and stuff from Marco Magarita on allthatsinteresting.com. So she had their son after he was in prison. She went and visited him once before she had the baby, but he never met his child and never saw her again from all the other. Wow. Well, good luck for, I mean, that's good news for the baby because, wow. And their son was named Charles Luther Manson, and he was born in 1960 in Denver, Colorado, and he changed his name to J. Charles Warner. He died in 2007. Oh, do we know what he died from? He was young. I'm not sure. I just saw that on the Social Security Death Index. Oh, my gosh. So he had two sons named after him. Yes. Wow. Well, he is a narcissist. Yes. And I find it interesting because I, I think part of the issue is they say that even though she separated himself from him, she still thought good things about him for years. Mm -hmm. She was in that whole mindset of he's great. And that's probably why she named him after her son, after Charles Manson. So people say there's not much known about Leona's past or parents. I took that as a personal challenge, <laughs> and I found her on the 1940 census. Woo, good on you. Uh, luckily, she was born in 1939. If it was after, I might have hit all the walls. And I even have a picture of her from her yearbook in oh, high yeah. school. Yep. And what I found was that her parents were Daniel Musser and Lola Compton. She was the youngest of four children, I think. In 1940, the family lived in Denver, Colorado area. There was talk that she might have run away, and that's how she ended up meeting Manson. I'm not sure, because I've seen reports that she met him in Los Angeles, but I'm not positive. I think they might have met in Denver, but I could be wrong. And I'll come to my theory on why I think it could be Denver in a little bit. But she did divorce Charlie in 1963 while he was in prison. 
her second husband was Charles R. Jeter. They married in 1964 and were married for about nine years before divorcing. Then she married J.C. Warner in November 1975. I'm not sure where she is today or if she's even alive, but I did wow. not find her in the Social Security Death Index. She could have married again and I could have missed it. So Yeah. And so that's the wives. Now, he did have another child who was named Valentine, and it was by one of his cult members. Mm -hmm. And Valentine has this cult member. I don't believe she spent much time in jail or prison. She wasn't convicted of one of the murders, mm -hmm. but she didn't have much of a relationship with her son growing up. But he was raised by her family. Oh, lucky him. And Good. he changed his name. Mm -hmm. And he's, I, I don't remember it off the top of my head now. But he's done interviews and he actually seems normal. <laughs> Thank God. Relative. You know, um, I saw a little snippet that he was named Valentine after a character in Time Enough for Love by Robert Heinlein. Oh, wow. I know. Like random factoid, right? Yeah. And he was around 18 months to two years when the murders happened and living oh at gosh. the farm with the family, I believe, at that time. Wow. And the family took custody after she was rounded up with the family and put in jail and all that good stuff. Well, thank God for that. He had a chance at a normal life then. Exactly. And apparently now he's developing a relationship with his mother and it, it started after he had his own children. Mm -hmm. So now speaking of mothers, we're going to go to Ada Kathleen Maddox, the mother of Charles Manson. And she was born in January, 1918 in Moorhead, Kentucky. According to family members, she ran away from home as a teen and worked as a prostitute. However, I found an interview with her that was, I believe it was an AP interview because it was in multiple publications that she did in 1971 saying she was never a prostitute. She was just a dumb kid. <laughs> and yeah, I could believe that. Mm -hmm. it, it could be they thought she was a prostitute because she was sleeping around. Mm -hmm. Well, and back then they kind of threw those words around interchangeably. Exactly. You know, like you didn't have to be a sex worker to get called a whore. You just right. had to have a boyfriend everybody could see that was spending the night. Yeah. Regardless, she was pregnant by age 16. Mm. Now, her mother allegedly, and this is according to Ada Kathleen, and she went by the name Kathleen, so I'll start referring to her as by that name, I mean. Um, her mother allegedly sent her to Ohio to have the baby, which is where she met William Eugene or Jean Manson. Mm. Now, they married in August 1934 in Cincinnati when she was likely six months pregnant. She was 16. He was 25. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some theories that abound that she lured him into the relationship and then made it seem like it was his baby, which is possible. I I she's know. a kid. Yeah. I'm like. But she was 16. I don't. Yeah. And he's gross and deserves whatever happens to him. Right. And he's going after a, the fact that he might think that was his baby meant he's a 25 year old sleeping with somebody who's not even an adult. So mm -hmm. who's not even quite 16 at the time she got pregnant. Right. Ew. So she gave birth to Charles in November, 1934 in Cincinnati. And like I said, didn't name him right away. And part of the reason she didn't name him then. And from this interview in 1971, she said she was waiting for her mother to get there to help her name the baby and her mother named the baby, not Kathleen and named it after Kathleen's father, Charles Millis Maddox. She later gave him the last name Manson a few days later when they changed the um, birth certificate. So Gene Manson was not the father. 
Mm-hmm. And it's funny because on Jean's find, there's a website called Find a Grave, and you can find tombstones of lost relatives and all that. And on his Find a Grave page, it's emphasized that he had no biological children. Okay. In 1936, two things happen. Jean Manson files for divorce in July. Kathleen files a bastardy suit against Colonel Walker Henderson Scott. And I need to emphasize the fact that Colonel is not his title. It's his name. Really? Yes. Wow, his parents had high aspirations for him. Yes. At the time that she filed the suit, he was a married man, eight years her senior. Oh, wow. Which means that when she got pregnant, he was probably 23 or 24. Wow. Having sex with a teenager. These people are gross. Wow. Then in 1937, the divorce is granted in April, and there's an agreed judgment on paternity, and she received a little bit of support from Colonel. Okay. So it is determined that Colonel is Charles's father. Now, I don't know if you do a DNA test if it would come out that way, mm-hmm. but Colonel took responsibility from there on out. And according to Kathleen, Colonel took that role seriously until his death by taking Charles to his house on occasional weekends Hmm. now she left out the fact that she moved and he couldn't do it for a while but Mm -hmm. apparently he took responsibility in 1938 kathleen got a marriage permit to marry a name by a man by the name of james lewis roby in kanawha west virginia do you recognize the name of that county kanawha west virginia i should because it sounds familiar We discussed it with Jim Jones because that's the same county where his family originated from. Was there something in the water? I don't know. Wow. But there was a little bit of overlap and I found that entertaining. I found no evidence that Kathleen married James Roby. And as has been implied, she was not the greatest of mothers Mm -hmm. because she was going out and having fun and doing stuff. Now, considering her age... I'm sure that had something to do with it. I'm not saying it gives her a pass on her responsibility, mm-hmm. but you're a mom, you're 16, about to turn 17. It's hard. Yeah, I can kind of get it. But she went a little further than most because I found the following article in the Cincinnati Inquirer on the 3rd of August, 1939, about her and her brother, Luther. Luther Maddox, 23 years old, and his sister, Kathleen, were charged tonight with the robbery of Frank Martin. Troopers said the pair, riding in Martin's car last night, stuck a bottle in his back, and as Martin got out, knocked him unconscious. The two were accused of the theft of $35 and an automobile, which later was abandoned. Wow. Yes. That is interesting. Her parents must have been just pulling their hair out with these two. Right. And, yeah. I would think so, but then it makes you wonder greater issues, what was going on in her family that would lead to this as well, mm-hmm. the two, yeah. two of their children. Yeah, because at that point, it's a crime family. It's not just, right. you know, a, a daughter who's a little wild, you know. Exactly. Then I find in the evening review on the 28th of September, 1939, the following article saying that West Virginia thug sister received terms. A brother and sister were sentenced to prison terms. For the ketchup bottle holdup. Yes, that's right. The bottle they used was a ketchup bottle. Luther wow. Maddox and his sister Kathleen Maddox Manson, both of Ashland, Kentucky, were sentenced to 10 years for armed robbery 
and five years for unarmed robbery, respectively. Both pleaded guilty. State police reported the brothers stuck a sand-filled ketchup bottle in Martin's back and told him to get out, then hit Martin on the head, took $27 from his pocket, and drove off in the car. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And she was 21 at the time or something? Yes. Now, they, they keep getting her age wrong, by the way, in these articles. And the first one said she was 20. She was 21. Mm-hmm. And the next one, it said she was 30. <laughs> she was 21 still. <laughs> she Maybe she just looked like she'd been ridden hard and put away wet. You know? I <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> wow. Now, I've seen stuff about Charles at this point because he's a little boy. He's only five years old. Not even five years old. I mean, he hadn't had his fifth birthday yet. That he was living with his grandparents. But I've also seen other things from a cousin that t- discuss how he lived with them. So mm-hmm. I get the impression he lived with one of his aunts, okay. his um, mother's sister and her family. In the 1940 census, I, of course, naturally find Kathleen living at the West Virginia State Prison in Marshall County, West Virginia, serving her term. After she was out, she married a Lewis Woodson Cavender Jr. on August 1945 in Belmont, Ohio. Charles would have been 10 years old. By 1962, when Charles is likely in prison again, Kathleen and Lewis live in Washington State, where they had a daughter, Charles's half-sister. And here's a little... Go ahead. I just have a really quick question. According to Wikipedia, the um, Maddox met somebody named Lewis with no first name through Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and married him in August, 1943. I think we need to go into Wikipedia and change it to yours because yeah, I found the got, marriage record. Yeah. I was going to say, you've got the actual details and I have the actual date. I'm just don't mm-hmm. put all the actual dates on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I should go do that and provide the evidence. Like I said, no, I just wanted to point out, I was like, that's great that you have that information. Oh, you yeah. know more than Wikipedia does. Now, I want to say one quick little funny story about Charles's half-sister. Okay. And I'm not going to reveal her name because she needs to have that to herself. But I found her in the night in the paper in 1963 because there's a picture of her because she was entered in the 1963 baby contest in the Spokane, Washington newspaper. Oh, well, that's adorable. And she's adorable. That's sweet. um, In February 1964... And now I'm not sure the order of events, what happened first here, but Lewis is fined $100 and receives a five-day suspension for drunk driving, hmm. a $50 fine for negligent driving. That same month, Kathleen files for divorce. Ah. The divorce is finalized later in that year. Now, in the interview, she described Lewis as a drunk, and she used a different name for him, too. Oh. So she used a different she wasn't going to tell them what her married name was. So she came up with an alias for her ex-husband. Okay. Now I suspect, and this is where my theory comes in about when Charles met Candy Stevens, that Lewis and Kathleen might've lived in Colorado temporarily before they moved to Washington. And it would have been right about that same time in the fifties. And that's how Charles ended up in Colorado where he likely met his wife number two. Because she never really left Colorado. But, Hmm. you know, I could be completely wrong. She could have ran away to California, for all I know. Mm -hmm. Interesting. In October 1965, Kathleen marries Gail Stanley Bauer. She dies eight years later in 1973 in Spokane. And Gail died in 1998. Now, we're going to move on to her family. 
and talk about her father, Charles's grandfather, Charles Millis or Charlie Maddox. Her parents were Charles and then Nancy Lorraine or Nanny Ingram. Charles Maddox was born in July 1884 in Elliott County, Kentucky. So Elliott County is two hours to the east of Lexington and one hour to the west of West Virginia. And he grew up in Elliott County with seven siblings. Charles worked as a railroad conductor, according to the census, until his death three years before his grandson was born. And that's part of the reason I don't think he was living with his grandparents, because the only grandparent he would have had to live with is his grandmother. And I doubt the Scots were involved. And I have Charles's obituary. I'm just going to read this a brief part of this. Uh, Charles M. Maddox, 47, a C&O conductor and an employee of the railroad for the last 22 years, died at his home in Ashland, Kentucky, following a week's illness of pneumonia. Mr. Maddox was stricken a week ago while at his work. The death of Mr. Maddox comes as a distinct shock to his host of friends. Mm. So he died fairly young. Yeah. Now, Charles had married Nancy Lorraine, or Nanny Ingram, in August 1907 in Rowan County. It's a county just to the west of Elliott, where she was born and raised. Nanny was born in April 1887 in Moorhead, one of 10 children. Charlie and Annie had four children together, the youngest being Kathleen, and the next youngest was Luther. So the ones that were causing trouble were the two youngest children. Hmm. Now, those younger kids, you got to keep an eye on them. Yes, you do. Their oldest child was Glenna Fay. She was born in 1911 and died in 1980. And she seems to have been the most stable with like little to no drama from what I could tell. She was married to a man by the name of William Thomas. And they lived in Kanawha, West Virginia for a number of years and had one child. The second child was Dorothy Eileen. She was born in 1913. Now she had a job as a young single woman in the 30s, which I found amazing and wonderful. But sadly, I found a notice of her death. Oh. Because she died in March 1933 of pneumonia. She was only 20. Oh. Yeah. Now we'll come back to Luther. His name was Luther Elbert. And he was born in 1915. And as you know, he was sentenced to prison for 10 years during that case with his sister. And then there's a little article that comes up in the Sandusky Register on the 25th of February in 1942. Toy guns used in prison escape. Back in their cells after a flight through three states, two state prison trustees told how they used toy guns to force a Steubenville man to aid them in their escape. Luther Maddox and James Holloway, both serving terms for armed robbery, related to the warden that they fled when sent out in a prison truck to return convict workers from a road project on Saturday. The men said they bought toy guns at Steubenville and forced Charles Hopkins to drive them in his car to a sister of Maddox in Charleston. She persuaded them to surrender. Wow. I believe the sister was probably Glenna because she was the one living in that county. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. And it did not help him being out of prison any sooner because I believe he likely died in prison um, because he died in February 1950 in Marshall County, West Virginia, where the prison was located. Wow. He was 34. Now, we're going to go to Charlie Maddox's parents, who were Christopher C. Maddox and Sarah Rebecca Carroll. Christopher was born in 1856 in Carter County, Kentucky. Now, I'm going to be naming off all these counties, and it's going to get confusing, but just know they're all in the same general location on the eastern part of the state, east of Lexington. Okay. But this is a county north of Elliott, and it's you drive through it if you're on I-64. 
but he spent most of life of his life in Carter County, except for a 20 year period when he went to Elliott County for some reason. And he was one of 10 children. Oh my yeah. goodness. Remember that pattern I told you about large families? Yes. Yes. <laughs> he worked first as a farmer and then later as a carpenter. There was an interesting note I found in the 1880 census. Now, each census will have a series of questions that get approved by Congress, what they're going to ask. So when there was a great deal of immigration coming, one of the questions was always, when did you immigrate? Are you naturalized or an alien? One year it was, how many children have you had? How many are still living? Or the real estate value. So different questions come up with each census. This census, they asked if there were any illnesses or disabilities. Usually this is where census takers were putting, looking for somebody who was deaf or blind or quote unquote dumb mm -hmm. and those types of things. Or if there was a long-term disability, like they're paralyzed or that type of thing. But this census taker took their job extra seriously because Christopher and one of his children were listed with acute diarrhea. Oh no. So now we know. <laughs> Uh, oh my gosh 140 years later that this, they were suffering oh my gosh yep i found that amusing well charles did i say charles no nope, i don't mean charles christopher married sarah rebecca carroll in april 1875 sarah rebecca was born in february 1856 the second oldest child in her family christopher and sarah had five children four girls and one boy charlie their daughters were Phoebe, Cinnabelle, Meldra, and Maudie. I love those names. Kind of fun. Rebecca, though, died young at the age of 30 in August 1886. Mm. So Christopher married again. He has five children to raise. And he marries a woman by the name of Clorinda Jane Parson around 1888. And they had three children, Rose, James, and Linville. Interesting note about Clorinda. She was Sarah's first cousin. Oh. Thus making the children that they had not only half-siblings, but also second cousins. Wow. Ha. Well, it is Kentucky. It gets better because there's more stuff like that coming. Okay. Ha. Now, Rose Ethel was the oldest child of Christopher and Clorinda. She was born in August 1893. In 1907, she married Walter Campbell, and both Rose and Walter were working even with three young daughters to support their family, which is unusual back then. In 1930, Rose was a waitress and Walter was a lineman for the telephone company. By this time, they lived in Ashland, Kentucky, and Ashland sits along the Ohio River. Now, I don't know the details, but Walter died in 1930, around 1932, around 46 years old. Hmm. Rose married again, this time to Walter Kirby in December 1936. And I'm sharing this story because I thought you might enjoy the wedding announcement. I love wedding announcements. And this one in particular, I don't know, it struck me. Now, I know back then, most women weren't necessarily wearing white to their wedding. They wore all sorts of colors. But this one threw me just a little bit. The marriage of Mrs. Rose Campbell and Mr. Walter Kirby was quietly solemnized Saturday evening, December 5th. Mrs. Kirby chose for her wedding a black chiffon velvet dress with a tiny lace collar of white, the only trimming. She wore a black close-fitting hat of velvet with a small net veil. Her other accessories were also black. Wow. Well, according to Laura Ingalls Wilder's mom, if you marry in black, you'll wish yourself back. So did they have a happy marriage or not? Well, unfortunately, 
the marriage was not meant to last as Walter died in November 1946, not even quite almost 10 years later. Oh my gosh. Hey, do we need to put her on our list of people we need to investigate? I'm wondering. It's possible. Did she know that you can boil flypaper and get arsenic? She might have. There's a lot of people who knew that. Just saying. Uh, I know. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go through the rest of the Maddox line fairly quickly. Not too quickly, but there's so much information to go. Christopher's parents were Cyrus Grimes and Rachel Elizabeth Wallace. Cyrus was born in 1820, around 1828 in Lawrence County. And Rachel was born in around 1830 in Greenup County to John Wallace and Fanny Wilkinson. And they married around 1848. Likely sometime after she married, her family, this is Rachel's family, left Kentucky and settled in Illinois. First in Jersey County, along the Illinois and Mississippi rivers, then later to the east in Effingham County. Rachel was the oldest of five children. Now, I found that interesting because she is the only one in her family, her immediate family left. Now back to Rachel and Cyrus, they had four children, at least. The youngest was Christopher. She died in November, 1858, when Christopher would have been two years old. Cyrus married widow, Mrs. Martha Mead Wallace, a mother of a young son. And I'm not sure if there's a connection, the Wallaces, if any. And they together had six children. Now we're going to go to Cyrus's parents were, were Abraham Maddox and Polly Crone. And Abraham's father was the first Maddox to arrive in the United States or the colonies at the time. And his name was Nathaniel Maddox. And he was born in 1773 in Liverpool, England. Actually, it might have been the United States when he arrived. Now I think about it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, probably was. And his wife was married. So just to clarify where we're at, these are Charles's fourth great-grandparents, Abraham, not Abraham, but Nathan and Mary. Nathaniel's parents were John Maddock and Agnes Hales. And John's parents were Jonathan and Dorothy Maddock. So those are the sixth great-grandparents of Charles Manson. And Jonathan was likely born in the 1740s, 1750s, somewhere in there. Now we're going to go back down to the wife of Christopher Maddox, Sarah Rebecca Harrell. This is the great-grandmother to Charles. Okay. Sarah was the daughter of Thomas Carroll and Armelda Parsons, who were both originally from Virginia. And Armelda went by the name Melda. Thomas and Melda, the second greats of Charles, married in December 1853 in Carter County. They had their first child a year later, Gabriel, and Sarah two years later. Then when Sarah was three years old, her father, Thomas, died of fever in October 1859. And we're going to come back to Melda in a minute. We're going to go on to Reverend Daniel Boone Carroll, Charles's third great-grandfather. So Thomas was the ninth child out of ten of his father, Reverend Daniel Boone Carroll, and mother, Amanda Rebecca Dillon. The father, Daniel, was the son of Luke Carroll and Martha. Nothing much else is known of them. Daniel, though, was born January 1796 in Russell County, Virginia, in that little corner area between Kentucky and Tennessee. In 1815, Daniel, in 1815, Daniel joined the military and fought in the War of 1812. His efforts resulted in a war bounty for land of 320 acres for military service. Wow. Mm -hmm. So going into the military was could be a good thing as long as you didn't die. Um, <laughs> there's a selling point. Get land. Just don't die. 
around now, 18. Was he related? Oh, go ahead. No, he was not related to Daniel Boone, as far as I can tell. Okay. It could be that there were already stories of Daniel Boone at the time, and his parents decided, hey, let's give him that name. Nice. Um, around 1820, he married Amanda Rebecca Dillon, and not much is known about her. She died around 1839, likely in her late 30s or early 40s. Daniel then married Mary Sturgill, a woman 26 years his junior. <laughs> wow. He was only 18 when they married. Wow. Which means he was 44. Unless wow. I'm doing my math wrong. Hold on. No, math is right. Daniel and Mary would go on to have seven children, meaning that Daniel was the father of, are you ready for this? 17 children. Oh my gosh. How old must he have been when the last child was born? <laughs> I mean, he had to be in his 60s. I didn't factor into that, but he wasn't much into his 60s because he died in 1859. Okay. And at eight, in 1859, he would have been about 63. Okay. Wow. And Mary died in 1875 because, you know, she was 26 years younger. Wow. I wonder if she was sad to see him go or was more like, whew, no more babies. <laughs> I would think it would be a mix because now she has young babies that she's taking care of on her own. Now we're going to go back to Melda Parsons, the second great grandmother who was married to Thomas Carroll. After Thomas died, Armelda married again, this time to James Caldwell in February 1860, just two months after Thomas's death. It's likely because she had children to raise and it was yeah. needed the support. They had one son together, George. I presume James died, but I'm not positive. What I do know is that in March 1866, Melda married a third time. This time, are you ready for this one? To Thomas's half-brother, the son of Daniel and Mary. Oh, wow. And his name was Samuel Carroll. So their children weren't just half-siblings. They were also half first cousins wow oh but there's huh. more like that we're not done and how many how many children did she have with her third husband then oh what perfect timing i was just about to tell you Ooh. armelda had a total of 13 children two with thomas one with caldwell and 10 with samuel wow mm-hmm she God died, bless her. I know. She died in 1903 in Carter County at the age of 64. Now we're going to talk about her parents, or should I say her parents? Let, let me start again here, because in, eight, in the 1880 census, I find Armelda living with an older brother, John, and their mother, Judah. And I presumed Judah must be a widow at the time, because there was no husband, a parent. But now I believe I was wrong. Um, before I get into it, I'd like to mention that John married Hannah Witt, and they had a daughter named Clorinda Parsons, the second wife of Christopher Maddox. Hmm. So Judah was born around 1801. I found her in the census in 1830 and 1840. And at first I'm going, oh, wait, maybe they marked Judah wrong, and Judah wasn't a woman, but was the father, and I got things confused. Hmm. So I double-checked, and no, it was the mother. And she was the head of household in 1830 and 1840, living as a single mother to her children. Now, what made this fascinating at the time is we discussed this in the last episode where I talked about how in the census, they didn't take names of every person in the household until 1850. Mm -hmm. 
So usually the only names you find in any census before then are male names, because mm -hmm. those were considered the head of household. The only time you might run across a woman was usually a widow, that type of situation. You never really found women living on their own. But it seems Judah had no husband at all and never did. And I have some suspicions as to the name of her father, but no proof. But why I suspect this is each census, she had more children. And it was just her and the children. By 1840, she had five children, three sons and two daughters, including Armelda. And no husband in sight. No husband in sight. I wonder if maybe she was adopting kids. It's, I mean, I don't think it's likely based on her age. Okay. Because she was a fairly young woman. Okay. And a young woman having young children is yeah. almost unheard of adopting. Now, if she had been an older woman, a, what's considered a spinster mm -hmm. back then, then I could see that would be a possibility. And they were young children then? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's very interesting. Yep. She likely died between 1860 and 1870 based on the census, and she never married from what I could tell. Wow. So it makes you wonder, was she a kept woman by somebody around the area? The fact she wasn't run out on a rail makes mm -hmm. me think she had somebody's protection. Yes, she must have. And that's what makes me suspect a certain person nearby might have been a father. Mm -hmm. And she kind of had her family's protection. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to go all the way back towards the beginning again. There's no easier way to do this to the great grandfather of Charles Manson. Actually, we're going to go to his grandmother, Nanny Ingram, and she was the wife of Charles Maddox. Her father was Luther Newton Ingram, and he was born in March 1839 in Ohio. Luther was the son of William Lloyd Ingram and Rebecca McAtee, who were both originally from Virginia and married in 1827. Luther's family mainly lived in Virginia. It was only for a brief period of time that they lived in Ohio. Like, they went to Ohio. She gave birth to Luther, and then they moved right back to Virginia. That type of brief amount of time. It was not wow. long. The rest of their time was spent in Wood County, Virginia, what is now West Virginia. Luther was one of at least eight children. And I found the coolest information on Luther. At least I thought it was cool because I love history and all that. In October 1861, at the age of 22, Luther crossed the Ohio River and enlisted in Company B of the 77th Infantry, Ohio, serving in the Civil War. And this wasn't just any regiment. In fact, Luther served for the whole war, not mustering out until March 1866 in Brownsville, Texas. And let me tell you about the 77th. So all this information I'm about to relate, I found on the Ohio Civil War, on OhioCivilWarCentral.com. Okay. The 77th Regiment formed in the fall of 1861, right when Luther joined. So he was probably one of the original members of the regiment. And they settled at Camp Denison near Cincinnati, Ohio. Then in February 1862, they moved to Paducah, Kentucky, where they joined General William T. Sherman's command, going with other Ohio regiments. After going through Tennessee on various missions and times to reconnaissance, they encamped at Shiloh Church, two miles from Pittsburgh Landing in Tennessee in March of 1862. From there, they led a surprise attack on Corinth, Mississippi. Then, a few days later in April, Confederate forces launched a surprise attack against the Union Army at Pittsburgh Landing, beginning the Battle of Shiloh. The 77th was near the center of the Union line where they stayed, but had to withdraw as the Union was losing. That night, other Ohio regiments arrived providing reinforcement. 
the Union had the advantage and the Confederates withdrew. From there, they joined other Union forces at the Siege of Corinth, Mississippi, where there was um, an important railroad junction. Then they spent time in Alton, Illinois, guarding military prisoners. Now, remember when we discussed Jim Jones? And yeah. he had the ancestor, William Shank, who was in Burgess Western Sharpshooters. Mm -hmm. And he was sent to Alton, Illinois. Wow. Now, I said he, he might have been at the Battle of Shiloh, but I said it was unlikely. However, given the troop movements, it's likely Luther and William were at the same place at the same time during the war. And not only that, but recall our discussion of Dorothea Puentes. Mm -hmm. However, grandfather's Joseph J. Yates was a Confederate soldier and was briefly held prisoner in Alton. Mm -hmm. It's possible the 77th was there when he was held based on the date. Oh my gosh. That's so we crazy. Have, we have a potential of three of overlaps over two of our killers so far this season. And they all come down. It all comes down to Alton, Illinois. Mm -hmm. hmm. so, I've always been suspicious of that town. Yes. <laughs> In 1863, wow. the regiment went under General Frederick Steele's command for the rest of the year. In December, the original members of the regiment, including Luther, could re-enlist. They all, every single last one of them, re-enlisted in January 1864 in Columbus, Ohio, as veteran soldiers. In April 1864, the 77th joined the 36th Regiment, Iowa Infantry, and 43rd Regiment, Indiana Infantry, to escort a supply train to Pine Bluffs, Arkansas. The 77th took the rear of the train. The other regiments were towards the front and when they were attacked by Confederate forces. The 77th rushed to where the attack was, but the Confederates forced them to surrender. Then the Confederates marched the Union soldiers to Camp Ford near Tyler, Texas. So they marched basically all the way from Arkansas down to Tyler, Texas. Wow. The 77th members stayed there until they were exchanged in February 1865. As far as I can tell, Luther was not captured, but it's possible he was. Those who were not captured continued to fight, including at the Battle of Jenkins Ferry. When the rest of the regiment was released in 1865, they joined the Army of the Gulf with the other members of the 77th that were not imprisoned and helped capture Mobile, Alabama. Wow. Then they were sent to Texas, arriving in Brownsville in August 1865, where they remained until they mustered out in March 1866. Do you get the impression that most of the Civil War was like all these guys wandering around trying to figure out where they needed to be? In a lot of ways, yes. And it's a lot of land to cover. Yeah. And they had to walk for the most part. Like, wow. Yeah. So, but after they mustered out, they all headed back to Ohio the same day. From 1861 to 1866, 70 men died in battle and 210 men died of disease or accidents. Wow. Eight years after he returned home in 1874, at the age of 35, Luther married. So he had not been married to this point. He married what did he do after he got mustered out between 1866, 1866 and 1874? I know in 1870, he was living with his family and he was farming. Okay. But I don't know much more than that. Um, he married a woman by the name of Sarepta Holbrook. She went by the name Reppy. Yeah, she was, that's cute. She was 19. Okay. So he's 35, she's 19. Luther spent the rest of his life as a farmer and together, he and Reppy had 10 children, the oldest in 1875 and the youngest in 1901. Luther died in 1918. Wow. So he actually, I mean, I mean, he obviously died before Charles Manson was born, but not really that long before. 
when you yeah, consider and, that he fought in the Civil War. Well, and if you think about it, he died in 1918, the same year that Kathleen was born, Charles's wow. mother. So she never knew him, but... You know, along those lines, did you see that woman who's like 90 years old and her mother was born into slavery? Yes. And it's That's like... amazing. It, it made me wonder how many other first-generation freed people are around. Because, I mean, her mother had to be around 50, but guys are fertile up until they die for the most part. So there could be a lo lot more people that are literally one generation from slavery alive right now. That we don't realize. But even then, I mean, I know there's a ton of two generations away, which is not that far. Right. It, it's, it's wild. Yeah. It's because we think of these things as happening so long ago, mm -hmm. you know, because we didn't, I mean, you know, kids today, they think the eighties were a long time ago. Right. You know, but <laughs> I know, right. I start to cry, but I mean, when we start looking at the history of the United States, it's a very short period of time relative mm -hmm. to almost any other country yeah. that we've been in existence period as a country and how our history is so compacted and it yet it seems like it was so long ago when it really wasn't that was my only point to all of that to say it is amazing to me that we're so close to the civil war it is it's fascinating and it's part of the reason i love history is because it's all not that far away mm -hmm. and you can learn so much from history so you don't try to make those same mistakes again mm -hmm. unfortunately I don't want to go off on my soapbox, but I might. We Feel got, free. It's your podcast. <laughs> we got into such a thing where we want to teach math and science, math and science, which, albeit, are important, mm -hmm. that we stopped really teaching history mm -hmm. because there were all these expectations and you had to have your kids ready. Where we used to have a really good grasp of history, mm -hmm. it's dying out this really embracing of what happened in our past and what happened in other places in the past. And it's sad. So I hope if somebody's listening to this, they understand this is my way of kind of giving back to history. <laughs> well, I absolutely support you in that because I know I did not enjoy history when I was a kid. And mm -hmm. I look back, it was the way it was taught. It was oh, like yeah. a series of meaningless dates that we had to memorize and it, it, I didn't understand any of it. But my father, fortunately, is a huge history buff. And so I got lots of stories from him that made history kind of come alive. And then as an adult, being able to kind of do my own thing and go, hey, I am interested in Alexander Hamilton. I think I'll read a book about it and go see a marvelous musical. Uh, but it, it's just like, wow, all these things that you just, unless you actually sit down and read and study it, you have no idea how it's all interconnected. Yeah. And you know, it's really cool. I was lucky because I, I had some of the same experience you did with history. But if it wasn't for my history teacher in high school who taught U.S. American, U.S. history, U.S. American history, that's redundant. But U.S. history, he actually had a doctorate in history. He was teaching in our little high school. Oh, wow. And his style, I mean, if he came in the classroom, you're like going, okay, he's not very interesting because he sat at his desk the whole time. He had his book open. He had little notes but he would tell a story about the history. It wasn't just about the date. So we would sit there in rapt attention, listening to him. He wow. didn't, he wasn't showy. There was no need to be because the history itself was interesting. Yeah. You're so lucky because my high school history teacher was a horrible human being who hated women, hated me in particular. 
Um, cause I'm mouthy and disobedient <laughs> and you know, really could you blame him? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me more about dead people. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now we're going to move over to the paternal line. Now I do want to emphasize the following. I did not finish the tree <gasps> at all. Denise. It's not like I can always finish. I usually hit a roadblock and there's not much further I can go unless I was to do some more very specific digging that takes a long time. But on this one, I had to stop while I was working on the paternal line because I was running out of time. I literally finished this Thursday and then was writing thing up, everything up Friday and wasn't done. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that's, I, I, tore, I contacted Corey Zelda. I'm like, we were supposed to record on Saturday and I'm like, can we push it a day? Because I'm not going to be done writing this up. Yeah. And that part of the reason I have, well, I'm getting all written up in time is I have three kids and they keep distracting me while I'm trying to work, but you know, that's okay. But they're not <laughs> trained to sit in cages quietly and watch you. <laughs> no. Man, what kind of mom are you? I'm trying. It's, it's weird. Cause I feel like I, even though I'm not getting paid, I feel like I have a job that I'm working <laughs> from home and trying to parent and it's it's a balance i don't know how people do that okay so anyhow so on to the paternal line we're going to start with the man who was determined to be charles manson's father colonel walker henderson scott senior he was born in may 11 on may 11 1910 in pike county kentucky now pike is the easternmost county in kentucky sandwiched between west virginia and virginia according to his world war ii draft registration which leads me to wonder if Colonel is the father, but we're going to keep going with it like he is. Colonel was a tall man. <laughs> <laughs> I see why you question the, the parentage. Uh -huh. He was six foot two, 175 pounds, with blue eyes, blonde hair, and a light complexion. Huh. So while it's possible he had some short family members and the genetics worked out that Charles ended up being this tiny little man, I don't know. Colonel was the youngest of four children born to his parents, Walker and Gladys. Around 1935, after Kathleen would have married and had Charles, or around the same time, he married a woman by the name of Dorothy. Together, they had two children, the first one, Colonel Jr., January 1937. This was just a few months before the Bastardy suit was settled. Mm -hmm. In 1940, Colonel and Dorothy had another child, a son named Robert Ellis Scott. Then... In April 1941, Dorothy Scott sued Colonel for divorce and won. The reason? His drinking problems, abusiveness, and non-support. Hmm. Dorothy won custody of both boys. Wow. Sometime before 1954, Colonel married again, this time to Sylvia Blair. On the 23rd of December 1954, Colonel died at King's Daughters Hospital in Ashland at the age of 44. Now, in that interview I mentioned earlier with Kathleen about Colonel, she had said that he had died of cancer. Mm -hmm. He did not die of cancer. But I have the death certificate. And his cause of death was cirrhosis of the liver with nutritional deficiency as a contributing factor. Oh, wow. So he was an alcoholic big time. Most definitely. Wow. And according to his obituary, Colonel once worked for the B&O Railway, but at the time of his death, he was a custodian for the Elks Club, where he was a member in Catlettsburg, Kentucky. Wow. 
I just have a question. So how many half siblings does that give Charles? Because I believe it's three. Okay. Cause he had one sister on his mom's side. Right. And two and brothers on his dad's side. On his dad's side. Okay. I did not look into his siblings. Okay. I know. I'm sure you did, but I was just kind of like, he had an awful lot of relatives running around out there just at his generational level. Right. No. Wow. Okay. Continue. Sorry. Okay. So Colonel's father was Henderson Walker Scott. He was born May 1883 in Pike County, Kentucky. And he was the second son and second child to his parents. And he was called Walker by his family. And Walker married Gladys Klein around 1904. They had four children, Darwin, Hazel, Ethel, and Colonel. Walker worked as a farmer in 1910 and 20. His wife, Gladys, died in 1924 at the age of 27. Hmm. In 1930, Walker now worked as a repairman for a building and had married a woman by the name of Ella. His three youngest children still lived at home and all were working in the house. Hazel as a school teacher, Ethel as a dry cleaning manager, and Colonel was working with his sister Ethel at the dry cleaners hmm. and was listed as being an assistant. By 1940, Hazel had married Floyd Hall. She and her husband were teachers and had one child, a daughter around four years old. Walker lived with Hazel's family working as a cattle buyer, and Ella wasn't around. I'm not sure if she died or if they divorced. I could not find Ella. I couldn't find their marriage record. That's all I know. Walker died in 1974 in Bardstown, Kentucky. So if he knew about, and I would think he would have known that Charles was his grandson. Mm -hmm. Then he was alive when Charles was convicted in all of that information. Wow. Bet he kept quiet about that. <sighs> Probably. Now, Walker's parents were General Garfield or Fields Scott. And like Colonel, General is not a rank. It's his name. But he went by Fields or Garfield more often. And he was married to Easter Angeline Lowe, who went by Angeline. Wait, her name was Easter? Yes. I love that. I thought it was Esther at first, but it was Easter. <laughs> That's lovely. And what I found funny is she wasn't born around Easter. So I'm just, I was, I thought maybe, oh, well, she must have been born then. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, they just really liked Easter. Yeah. So Garfield was born in October 1862 to Henderson Scott and Rebecca Maynard, the oldest of 10 children in Pike County. He married Angeline in 1881. He was 18. She was 15. They had five children in quick succession and were expecting the birth of one more when Fields died in July 1889. His son Benjamin was born four months after his death. Angeline now had five children to support as a single mother. And that was especially not easy to do back at that time in history. Oh, my gosh. What did she do? She was married within two years, this time to a Wallace Taylor in April 1891. And we'll come back to her later. Before I go on, I do want to mention that we know that the census is every 10 years. But what some people might know is that most of us, we don't really have any access to the 1890 census. How come? You don't know this? Uh -uh. A fire burned it. Oh, no. So there are parts of it. I have yet to come upon anybody in my family on the parts that exist. Oh, my gosh. The only part of the 1890 census that survived in whole was the veteran census. Wow. So I would know more about what she was doing in 1890. 
if I had had that, my guess is she's probably with one of her family members temporarily. But the best solution was to marry again. Wow. Okay, so now we're going to go to Fields' father, Henderson Scott, who was born in 1842, probably in Pike County. And he was born to Anderson Scott and Margaret Pinson. His parents were born around 1807 and 1811, respectively, in Kentucky. They died sometime between 1870 and 1880. And Henderson was one of at least five children. Although he was old enough, I, I have found no evidence that Henderson served in the Civil War, although it's possible. Hmm. He married Rebecca Maynard in September 1861, also in Pike. They had many children, but many died young. On the 1900 census, census takers asked women how many children they had given birth to and how many still lived. They did this again in 1910. Rebecca's answer in 1900 was that she had given birth to 12 children. Six of them were living. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I can account for 10 of the children. I'm guessing two of them were very young when they died and mm -hmm. between the censuses. Then in 1910, her answer was only three living. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Of their children, I know that Nancy was born in 1865 and died at 19 in 1884. Her sister, Margaret, died two months after Nancy at age 17. And Sister Effie died four days before Nancy at age 14. What happened? Was it Spanish flu or something? Well, this is 1884, so it wasn't the Spanish flu, but it sounds, my guess is it had to be an illness, especially the ones that were four days apart. Mm -hmm. but that's three children they buried in one year alone. That was 1884? Yes. And as I mentioned before, Fields died in 1889, and they had a son named Erastus who died at age 25, four days after his birthday in 1900. I just did a really quick Google. Apparently, mm -hmm. there was a cholera epidemic that year. Oh, I bet you that was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, back to your work. Cool. Okay, <laughs> now the son, their son, Benjamin, died in 1903 after falling out of a wagon, and the wagon then rolling over onto him. Oh, my God. He apparently lived for 24 hours before dying. Oh, my God. I can't imagine the pain. I mean, I think they had morphine back then, but still. Oh, my God. I hope he was unconscious. Yeah. Like, oh. Then a daughter died two years later in 1905 at the age of 23. Yeah. Oh, my God. The three children still living by 1910 were Aura, Augusta, and John Henderson. Aura would die 13 years later of tuberculosis at the age of 50. Only two lived into old age. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's horrifying. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Now, we have, uh, I'm going to call this a postmaster alert because we've had one before. But in 1900, Henderson Scott became a U.S. postmaster for Gulnare, Kentucky. Oh, yay. I love hearing about the postmasters. Yeah. Rebecca died in 1915 at age 72 and Henderson in 1926 at age 84. Wow. Now we're going to go over to Rebecca Maynard, the wife of Henderson. And she's the second great-grandmother to Charles Manson. Her parents were Benjamin Maynard and Elizabeth Deskins, or Betsy. Hmm. She was the third child of 15, born to Benjamin and Betsy. Dear God, that woman was generous to God. Yes. Benjamin was born in October 1815 in Floyd County. Now, Pike County was formed six years later out of part of Floyd, so it's likely they were in the same area later on. He married Betsy in December 1839. He was 24. She was 15. Okay, you. 
<laughs> she was born in May, 1824. Now, Betsy would have her first child, Albina, around 1841 at the age of 16 or 17, and her last, Sherman, around 1870 at the age of 45 or 46. Wow. Now, on September 10th, 1862, Benjamin enlisted in the Union forces during the Civil War as part of Company C, 39th Kentucky Infantry, along with his son, Rebecca's brother, Amos, who was 18. He would muster out at the end of the war in September 1865 in Louisville, Kentucky, where he had been hospitalized. Now, I am unsure why the family left Kentucky, but as soon as the war ended, they hightailed it out of Kentucky. And so Benjamin took him, his wife, and their at least 10 of their children north to Todd County, Minnesota, which is That's a That's not just a move off the border, up the border. Oh, no. Wow. And a move from Kentucky to Minnesota? That had yes. to be a shock. Well, yeah, the cold. Mm -hmm. In 1872, Benjamin bought 161.19 acres of land acquired through the Homestead Act of 1862. Hmm. He died in 1885 at the age of 70. Betsy lived at least another 19 years, dying around the age of 79. Wow. Okay, we're going to go back to Angeline Lowe, or Easter, the great-grandmother of Charles and Garfield Scott's wife. Angeline was born in Pike County on the July 18, 1865, to Orison Lowe and Elizabeth. When we left off, Garfield had died before the sixth child was born, Benjamin. So she basically gave birth to six children in seven years. Oh, my gosh. She was always pregnant. God love her. Two years after Garfield's death, she married Wallace Taylor. Her days of having babies weren't done. After all, she was only 25 when she married Wallace. Wow. And she had more children with Wallace, 10 more children to be exact, the first born in 1892 and the last around 1906. So in 14 years, she birthed 10 children, all before she turned 41. And so she had a total then of 16 kids? Yes. That is a mighty mama. In March 1911, Angeline got tuberculosis and died. How old was her youngest then? He would have been around five. Oh, and she tragic. was around 46. That's tragic. Angeline actually died eight months before her father did. Orison died in November on at the age of 72. Both died in Pike County. Now let's talk about Orison Bird Madison Lowe. He was born, this is her father. He was born in September 1839 in Pike to Orison Richard Lowe and Jane Stone. Orison was a farmer who, like his neighbors and family around him, enlisted to serve in the Civil War. And he served on the Union side in the 65th Kentucky Regiment in May 1864 as a sergeant. Oh, I should say he enlisted on the Union side of the 65th um, Kentucky Regiment in May 1864 as a sergeant. But his time of serving was very short. He mustered out just one month later. I hmm. have no idea why. That is very curious. Yes. Orison married Elizabeth Marillis Runyon in September 1858. They had 11 children. We really don't have time to go much into his family line because we have so much more coming. But I will say the Lowe family goes back to the early 17th century in England. And going up another part of his line leads to Cager Frazier. Oh, wow. His great-grandfather, Charles's fifth great-grandfather. Cager was born in 1753 in Albemarle, Virginia. He married Susanna Hamilton and both lived long lives. Cager dying at age 89, just six weeks before his next birthday. And Susanna died at 97. Oh, my gosh. 
And I found the following on Find a Grave about McCager and his family. And it's from a Frazier family history book. McCager and his family followed the early flow of migration from northwestern Virginia to Wilkes County, North Carolina. As the children were grown and married, some lived in Lawrence County, Kentucky, and others on the Virginia side of the Big Sandy River. It was now Wayne County, West Virginia. Sometime in about 1835, members of this family, including McCager and his wife, moved to Jackson County, Missouri. That's Kansas City area. Two or three of the grandchildren were born there, and after three or four years, all of the, all of the family, except one son, returned to Kentucky. After McCager died, Susanna moved to Wayne County, Virginia, where she would pass away nine years later. McCager served in the Revolutionary War, and he has a deposition supporting his Revolutionary War service pension application, describing his time. And part of it I found fascinating just because I love history, but because this is going to be a long one, I will probably have this on the site so people can see it. Okay, cool. Let's just say he did meet Lafayette. He wow. served under him at one point. What I need to know is, did anybody in this line so far end up in Alton, Illinois? No, okay. not as far as I know. But he left the war because he got sick with yellow fever. Ah. He had burned all his, all his proof that he had been in the war. Wow. And then I found an interesting note that I found funny because the Frazier name is spelled F-R-A-Z-I-E-R. But when you go back in the records, you start seeing it spelled F-R-A-S-H-E-R. And apparently, there's a legend that says the name was spelled with the S-H because people in West Virginia were superstitious of names that had the letter Z in them. Really? Yes. How curious. I do not know how true that legend is, but I found that amusing. That is amusing. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay, so we're going to go back to Orison's wife, Elizabeth Runyon. She was born to Adrian Runyon and Nancy Jane Maynard in June 1841, Pike County. Adrian was born in Tazewell, Virginia in 1801 and Nancy in 1810 in Floyd County, Kentucky. They married in December 1824. Now, if you've done the math in your head quickly, you'll know that Adrian was 23 when they married and Nancy 14. I'm beginning to see a pattern within this family. Yes, and that's one of the things I said at the top, lots of young brides. They had, and here's the other part of the pattern, they had 14 children. The youngest was born in 1855. Four years later, in 1859, Adrian died of hepatitis, and Nancy did not remarry and lived until 1883. Wow. The Runyons go back to Isaac Runyon, who would be Charles's fifth great-grandfather, who was born in New Jersey in 1738 and married Charity Hegeman. Most likely, they married in Maryland in 1760. Isaac was also a Revolutionary War soldier. The Runyon family possibly moved to Kentucky after the death of Isaac in 1821 in Tazewell. The Maynard family may or may not connect with the ones married to the Scott family. That is yet unknown. Nancy, the wife of Adrian, was the daughter of Moses Maynard and Sarah Greenstreet. They were from North Carolina before Kentucky. Not long after Nancy married, they moved and settled in Madison County, Indiana, with all of their other children, save Nancy. Nancy was still in Kentucky. Hmm. This is when things get a little more interesting because the Runyons lived next door to McCoy families mm -hmm. and some Runyons married McCoys. Just save this in your brain for later. Okay. Because Adrian's daughter, Sarah, married a Billy McCoy and they moved to Missouri in 1867. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is his cause of death. Because two years after they moved to Missouri, he died of a lightning strike. What? Yes. Wow. 
And Billy's brother was Asa Harmon McCoy. Okay. And okay. I think the Runyons must have been close to the McCoy family because one of Elizabeth's brothers was named Asa Harmon Runyon. Oh. Now we're going to Charles's grandmother, Gladys Klein Scott, and the Klein family opens everything up and makes the skies go, oh, okay. <laughs> it got me very excited. So Gladys Klein was married to Henderson Walker Scott, right? And she died at 27 in her home in February 1924 in Catlettsburg, Kentucky. The cause of death lists heart trouble, 27 with heart trouble. With the following note, dead when doctor arrived. Oh my gosh. So I found that odd. Maybe she'd had like, you know, some sort of childhood disease that weakened her heart. Or something that they didn't know about at the time mm -hmm. because they didn't have this. That's, that's possible. Um, she was the oldest child of eight to her parents, Colonel Calvin Klein. Again, name not ranked, but now we know how her son got the name Colonel. <laughs> and Margaret or Maggie Porter. Colonel Klein was referred most often as C.C. Klein. He was born in 1865. He married Maggie around 1885, probably in Pike County. Maggie was just one year younger for a change. Um, they, spent, <laughs> they spent their lives together in Floyd County next to Pike. Most of that time, Cece was a farmer, but in September 1899, he was made the U.S. Postmaster of Klein, Kentucky. Yay for the postmasters! Oh, what? And, and, but there's more. But wait, there's more. When his time was up, Maggie became the U.S. Postmaster of Klein in January 1902. Are you kidding me? No. I wonder how many women postmasters there were at that point. I am dying to know that now. Oh, my I, God. Because I was just looking on the original document showing the list of the postmaster and right after his name was hers. And I... Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm going to look that up. Okay. Cece died in 1909 at the age of 43. So now wow. Maggie needs to support their children and she farmed. On the 1910 census, she's listed as a farmer. Actually, I think this was her. She was listed as a farmerette. A farmerette? Yes. That's lovely. Because we had to feminize farmer, apparently. And she farmed for a while, and she never remarried. She died almost 30 years later at the age of 72. And let me tell you a little bit more about Maggie's family. Her parents were Henry Logan Porter and Arminta Wells, who married in 1863. Arminta was likely 15 when she married, and Henry was 21. Now okay. we're... Okay, go ahead. I, I found notice. stuff on women postmasters. Yes. Okay, so this is so interesting. <laughs> they um, So first of all, somebody wrote a whole paper on it, and I'm going to send this link to you because there's way more here than what I can share. Right. Um, the first post female postmaster was Mary Catherine Goddard, who was the sister of a postmaster, and she was the only female postmaster in office when the Second Continental Congress appointed Benjamin Franklin as the first postmaster general. So that was like 1775. Oh, wow. Now, if we look into the 1800s, when um, Maggie would have been a postmistress, right. it turns out that they actually started hiring more women after the Civil War. And the reason is that um, following the Civil War, women were hired because prior to July 1868, prospective postmasters had to swear they had not voluntarily aided the Confederacy or Confederate soldiers, oh. and very few Southern men could actually take that oath. And Kentucky, since it was a border state and you had Union forces and Confederate forces there, mm -hmm. 
Mm. Now, furthermore, the post office at Covington, Louisiana, was the first to be headed by an African-American woman, <gasps> Anna M. DeMoss. She was appointed postmaster on November 15, 1872, and served until about June 1885. That's awesome. So I'm going to send you this paper, though, because it looks like there's a lot of fascinating women in and it. And I might include that link. Oh, so that would be awesome. So we're now to the really, really good stuff, the stuff I saved to the end. As I looked back at C.C. Klein's family, I began to suspect the historical connection that was has been made into me. Movies, it's been on TV shows, many a documentary. There's even a podcast or two about this historical event. It started Ooh. with finding that Cece's parents were Peter W. Klein and Elizabeth McCoy, who married in 1853 and had eight children. Now, I had seen the McCoy and the Runyons, and I was like going, could it? But I put it to the side so I could keep going. <laughs> but I'm like, McCoy, could it be McCoy's in Kentucky? McCoy's? Yes. Was there, was there a Hatfield involved? We'll see soon. So let's start with Peter. Peter was the grandson of another Peter who was born in around 1755 in Pennsylvania. And he was the son of Jacob Klein, otherwise known as Rich Jake and Nancy Fuller. We'll go back to that in a bit. Peter W., his siblings were William Trigg, who married Margaret McCoy, Martha or Patty, who married Asa Harmon McCoy. And remember, Asa Harmon McCoy was the brother of Billy McCoy, who was married to Adrian Runyon's daughter, Sarah. Same. And Adrian was the father of Elizabeth Runyon. I know, it gets very confusing, but there you go. Asa Harmon McCoy was the grandson of the progenitor of the McCoy clan, William McCoy, Old William. Elizabeth married Richard Thomas Hatfield. So there's that Hatfield. Oh, my. Nancy, Mary, Jane, whose second husband was, was John McCoy, Jacob, and Perry Klein. This was the McCoy family of the Hatfield and McCoy feud. Mm -hmm. There is that one Hatfield in there amongst all those McCoys. But not only that, but it turns out that Charles's second great-grand-aunt, Patty Klein McCoy, was married to the man who sort of started it all, Asa Harmon McCoy, when he was murdered by a Hatfield toward the end of the Civil War. Wow. But wait, there's more. <gasps> Remember that Charles's second great-grandmother was Elizabeth McCoy, who married Peter W. Klein. Turns out that she was the granddaughter of old William McCoy, making Asa Harmon not only an uncle by marriage to Charles Manson, but also his first cousin four times removed. Wow. Oh, but there's even more. Oh, no. It turns out that Elizabeth Marillis Runyon, who married Orson Lowe, had a sister named Polly, just two years older than her. Polly was married to, wait for it, Anderson Hatfield, known to the community as Preacher Ants. Ants was short for Anderson. Preacher was a cousin of Devil Ants Hatfield. <laughs> I love these They were names. about the same age. Devil Ants was William Anderson Hatfield, a leader of the Logan Wildcats, and family head of the Hatfields who battled it out with the McCoys. The Klein family, it turns out, played a large role in the feud. So let me tell you the story as I found it on the Klein Family Association webpage, written in large part by a descendant and researcher, Jerry Klein, as well as research I found from Wikipedia. And I find the easiest way to do this is to give you just a little background, and then we're going to do a timeline, because it's very confusing. And I'm also saying this because if I didn't do this, I mean, I could spend hours just on the Hatfield-McCoy feud. I mean, there's so yes. much. <laughs> but yes. if you've been listening and paying attention, you're going to hear names I've mentioned before as we go through here. 
Devil Ants Hatfield was the head of the Hatfield family. They mainly lived in Logan, West Virginia. They were Confederate sympathizers, frustrated by the split of Virginia and it turning into a Union state. Devil Ants formed a group of irregulars, so they weren't an official troop, called the Logan Wildcats. Not to be confused with the 36th Virginia Infantry for the Confederacy, which was also referred to as the Logan Wildcats. Randolph McCoy, or Old Randall, brother of Asa Harmon, and first cousin of Elizabeth McCoy Klein led the McCoy clan. They lived mainly in Pike County, Kentucky. Many McCoys were in the Confederacy, except for Asa Harmon, who served in the Union. And by the way, the Kleins were all on the side of the Union during the war. Okay. Now, both families lived along the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River. And it's basically the border between West Virginia and Kentucky, that general area. And it has been claimed that the Hatfields were more, not only more affluent, but they were also more politically connected than the McCoy family. But other than a few family members intermarrying and stuff, they also had illegal moonshine in common. Here we go with the timeline. And since the Kleins are involved with this, I plugged them into the timeline because I think it relates, especially when you see, as I listed, how many Kleins married McCoys, how that would add to the tensions. So, in 1819, Jacob Klein, Rich Jake, Charles Manson's third great-grandfather, after serving the world in the War of 1812, buys a 5,000-acre tract of land from John Compton. The land was originally part of 30,000 acres owned by John Green of Philadelphia, but it turns out Compton did not actually own the land. And Jake discovered that in 1828, when the estate of John Green was being divided and such. So there were several legal battles and claims. Then in 1839, Jacob repurchased the land, now owned by John Lawson. Then he built a house, and this was in Logan County, Virginia. In 1858, Rich Jake dies, leaving his land to his orphan sons, or at least a portion of his lands, to his orphan sons, Jacob Jr. and Perry. And they, he also left Jacob and Perry their three slaves, William, Perry, and Charlotte. I'll get more into that in a minute. In 1861, so three years later, Devil Ant starts trespassing on the fine lands that were left to the orphans, and he would remove timber there. Ants claims to hold title to the lands, but there were none produced. Apparently, there's a title that traced back to 1795, 20 years before Ants' father was even born. Additionally, the executor of Jacob's estate runs off with the personal proceeds from the land, leaving the orphans destitute and now being cared for by the slaves, William, Charlotte, and Harry. Now, wow. I I did try to find the slaves in the 1870 census without much success. I was presuming that they might have the last name Klein. I did find a William Klein who was Black, born in Virginia, living in New Jersey, but I'm not sure if it was him. Okay. And I wish I could, because I'd like to help out people finding their um, ancestors, their slave ancestors. Okay, so the Civil War starts, and Ann stops trespassing, for the time being at least. At the beginning of the Civil War, Asa Harmon McCoy became part of the Pike County Home Guard under the leadership of Uriah Runyon. So there's another family name we know, Runyon. And it was also run by a man by the name of William Francis. In 1862, the Home Guard shot Moses C. No, not Moses. Mo C. Klein, and he lived. And he is a Klein relation. But he was also a friend of Devil Ants Hatfield. And Devil Ants swore vengeance. Sometime in 1863, William Francis was killed by Confederate home guards as he left his house. Devil Ants took credit for the killing. Asa Harmon joined the 45th Kentucky Infantry for the Union in October 1863. Around March 1864, he was shot and captured by rebels, then returned to the Union, to Union forces at a Maryland hospital. By May 1864... 
ACEs in Lexington, Kentucky at the hospital for a leg fracture. In December, the regiment, the 45th Regiment musters out and Asa heads home. Two weeks later, Asa is killed by rebels. The McCoy family blames Jim Vance and the Logan Wildcats. Jim is Devil Anse's uncle. Wow. In 1867, Anse returns to trespassing and illegally removing timber from the Klein land. They call a meeting in 1869, and Jacob Jr. claims that ants tried to force the orphans to give up their land through physical force and, quote, by the muzzle of a gun. Jacob Jr. refuses, but Perry Klein gives in, selling his half to ants. 1870, ants builds a home on the land, and now he is Perry's closest neighbor. In 1871, ants still has not paid for the land he forced Perry to sell. From the Klein family website and Jerry Klein, I'm going to... So this is a direct quote. It is not known what kind of pressure was put on Perry Klein and his young family. But in 1871, Perry again agreed to trade Devil Ants, his portion of the grapevine lands, as well as, as well as his inheritance of the old home place, for a piece of land on the Tug River in Pike County, Kentucky. By 1872, Devil Ants moved from Grapevine Creek and into the Klein homestead at the Tug. Soon after, Devil Ants traded lands with Perry Klein and moved into the Klein homestead. Devil Ants surveyed the property himself, although it was not known, <laughs> although he was not known as a surveyor and could not read or write. Moreover, he specifically testified in a sworn deposition that he ignored the county surveyor's lines and created his own. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. This was the source of the 1872 lawsuit relied upon by other historians to claim that Devil Ants sued and won the case against Perry Klein in an out-of-court settlement. However, this is entirely inaccurate as proven by the original court documents. There was a confusion over the proper proper boundary line, but this was settled in March 1877 after the court ordered a surveyor to survey the land in 1876. The case continued on for years after the deed for the land was signed and filed by both parties and was eventually dismissed because of inaction by devil ants. So they, it was battle after battle. So that's going on. Then in 1878, there is a fight over a hog. Yes, a hog. Oh my. With Randolph, with Randolph McCoy claiming a hog is his, while Floyd Hatfield is going, it's his. Oh, my. Now, they brought it to a judge, none other than Preacher Ants Hatfield, who we've mentioned before, who ruled the Justice of the Peace, and he ruled for the Hatfields on the basis of the testimony of Bill Stanton, a relation to both families. Soon after... That was decided two McCoy brothers of Randolph kill Stanton, claiming self-defense, and they get off. <laughs> I love your face right now. Two of them yes. killed him, In but apparently he tried to kill them first, according to their own testimony. Yes. Yeah, Kentucky justice at its best. Then Rosanna McCoy, daughter of Randolph, gets in a relationship with Johns Hampfield and goes to West Virginia to be with him. Now, apparently, Devil Ants would not let Johns marry her. Oh. She ends up returning to Kentucky. Johns tries to resume their relationship, and he is arrested on a bootlegging warrant by the McCoys once he goes into Kentucky. <laughs> Rosanna tells De Devil Ants that he's been arrested, and Devil sends a rescue or sends a posse to rescue Johns and takes him back to West Virginia. This is 1881. Sadly for Rosanna, her family rejects her because she let the Hatfields know what was going on. And then Johns abandons her, even though she's pregnant. Oh my gosh. Well, there's a blood feud right there. Right. 
she had the baby and it died at eight months old. She oh. never married and she died when she was around 28 years old. Oh, that's terrible. Some say it was of a broken heart. Mm. Johnson said marries her cousin, Nancy McCoy, daughter of, are you ready? Asa Harmon McCoy and Patty Klein McCoy. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Wow. There are back and forth battles that continue for years. Then from the original Klein homestead where Devil Ants now lives, he directs the following to happen. 1888 on New Year's Day, Anderson Cap Hatfield, Anza's son, and Jim Bantz take several Hatfield family members to surround the McCoy cabin. They wanted to flush out Randolph. Randolph escaped with some children, but his wife was beaten close to death, and two children, a son and a daughter, are killed. Oh my God. It's, it's called the New Year's Night Massacre. Oh my God. Yeah. After this massacre, Sheriff Deputy Frank Phillips of Pike County forms a posse to track down Anse's group. Two McCoys were part of the posse, hunting down those responsible. Things came to a head on January 9, 1888 at Grapevine Creek when the posse tried to corner the Hatfields there. But the Hatfields, including Anse, were waiting for them, and a battle ensues. Eventually, eight Hatfields and friends were indicted for the murder of Randolph's daughter, Althair McCoy, that was killed on New Year's Day. It's even better, because... The Supreme Court of the United States gets involved. Oh my gosh. Yes. And the case was Mahon versus Justice, 1888, with SCOTUS ruling 7-2 for Kentucky, saying that a man can still be tried for the crime, even if they are apprehended illegally or something along those lines. Wow. Because the Hatfields are going, well, we were illegally taken and mm -hmm. they have the right. Huh. Well, I imagine after all that, the Supreme Court was like, yeah, we don't care. You need killing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, we're done now. <laughs> military forces were about to get really involved in this. I mean, that's how severe it was getting. All men were found guilty. One was hanged, Ellison Mount. Ellison Mount was the illegitimate, illegitimate son of Ellison Hatfield and Harriet Hatfield, first cousins. Oh. Mm -hmm. This is where that Kentucky stuff comes from, I think. Thousands <laughs> attended to watch his hanging in February 1890 in Pikeville, Kentucky. Now, today, the Hatfields and McCoys seem to get along great and even have a dinner show in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, that you can watch to this day. Oh, my gosh. Well, I know they have a festival every year now. They have that as well. And that is the family of Charles Manson. Well, at least a good portion of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I told you it was a lot. <laughs> That's just crazy. Oh, my gosh. And I bet, I mean, there's still so much more, you know. Well, there there's, is. It's just because I didn't have time to go down the lines to see mm -hmm. if there were more. And there's some stuff I did cut out because there just wasn't time. And, mm -hmm. and there were little stories here and there, which are interesting. Mm -hmm. So it has me wondering if we get a following someday, you know, and if you're one of those people you're willing to do it, maybe we could start a Patreon account and we can share some of the stuff that we can't get on here. Or maybe we go back and revisit some things mm -hmm. and do a special episode revisiting. I have to tell you, doing something about the Hatfields and the McCoys mm -hmm. was fascinating because um, I'm just like amazed. I'm amazed. Yeah. And apparently, I, and I just kind of caught this in passing, when they had um, a joint family reunion of the Hatfield and McCoy families in 2000, um, over 5,000 people attended. Wow. So their families were fruitful and multiplied. Oh, yeah. Well, that was clear. I mean, they were having 10, 15, 20 children, you know. Well, they had to because they were in war all the time. You know? it's like, but I wow. mean, that, that was a battle that went on between them 
where it comes to blows for what was that uh like 15 years right there and then they still weren't really talking to each other for years after that yeah and the clients are right in the middle of it but you know you don't really hear about them i can only yeah. imagine that that battle with land with devil ants was just getting the mccoys upset because this is family to them the clients are their family mm-hmm mm-hmm and yeah, that's crazy. And don't you love those names? Yes. <laughs> Although I have to say one thing, the name Valentine Hatfield has been popping up. And oh. I was like, you know, it's curious to me that, you know, one of the Manson sons was named Valentine. Yeah. And they, they said that it was from a character in this book, Time Enough for Love. But now I'm wondering if they just got that wrong and it was actually a family it was a family name. But I don't think he knew that much about his family. I can't imagine that he knew that he was part of the Hatfield and McCoys on his father's side. I mean, it's possible. That's true. Because it's not like he had a close relationship with the Scott side. Mm -hmm. No, that's no. true. I, we have no idea. And we really it don't could, have any way of knowing now. It could be coincidence, but it ends up being like a family name that got passed down inadvertently. Yeah. How crazy. And that's crazy. Well, Denise, thank you for this, like, amazing learning session today oh, this was fantastic it was a lot of information and oh my gosh it's it's crazy it was fun though because there's part of me that isn't really done like i other trees i've done i feel finished this one feels so incomplete mm -hmm. because i couldn't i didn't have the time to go down all the lines and i don't always go down all the lines i should say if i go down some of them just to take a quick peek, see if there's something mm -hmm. I can find. And I will say, I'm glad there was some interesting stuff going on because I had problems buying newspaper reports in this general area because mm. there aren't a lot of them on the webs right now, the interwebs mm -hmm. where I can access them. So I lucked out into a couple, a couple ones, but for the most part. <laughs> wow. Well, thanks for letting me be a part of things. This is great. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I had, that was fun. That was super fun. And I really liked it. And that was our special Halloween episode. So, you know, that could be a long one. So I hope people stuck around and yeah. that you're still listening to us now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the plan is right now, I have a short amount of time to do this, but I can get it done, I think, is because I, I can always stop myself where I need to. But we're going to cover the story of In Cold Blood by Truman Capote for November. And we'll, we don't know which one we're going to start with, but we will be doing the trees of Perry Smith and his partner, Richard Hickok. That's really cool. Yeah. I think that's I cannot cool. wait. Have you read In Cold Blood? I started it, but I haven't ever finished it. I kept, part of the reason is I started it when I had kids. Oh. Yeah. And, and now that my kids are going to, well, eventually after the virus is done, once they're in school more often, I'll have more time to really settle in and read. Mm -hmm. I find myself more often reading like this book I have here, which is ah. a bodice ripper because they're quick, easy. I don't have to do a whole lot of thought into them. And they always and I, have happy endings. Pretty much. Yeah. I like that. And they're just less stressful. And then when the kids are really busy in the summer and other points, I can get into more of a book. But right now with the kids being home so much, yeah. And back to romances. Thanks so much for joining us today as we covered Charles Manson. That was fun, right, Zelda? I had such a great time. I'm so glad we chose this one for Halloween. Yeah, you picked him out in the end. So that was a perfect pick. Okay, I'll take credit for it. Thank you. <laughs> so 
We hope you listen next time. And in the meantime, feel free to come to the website where we have pictures and documents to support this episode. And remember, the website is murderousroots.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.